How many are thankful for Jesus this morning? Amen. Well, Advent just simply means arrival or the coming of the Lord. And Advent is the time of year where the church fights tooth and nail not to enter into the chaos and busyness of the Christmas season and instead chooses to anchor all of our hopes in the one who has come to us, Jesus Christ, and then who is coming again for us at the end of the age. And it's this, this tension of the middle where we have an invitation by the Holy Spirit to cultivate a resilient hope and a resolve that the one who promised is the one who will fulfill his word. And so over these next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to just pause and, and, and drill down on key phrases or, or really a key word that we can hang the theme of the day on. And so our Advent theme for today is hope. Amen. Can we all say Amen. hope? Hope. Hope. There's a few words for hope in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But all of them, like the, the, the main uses of the word hope, it's everyone's favorite word. It's the tension, the expectation, and the anticipation for something or for someone to act. How many are good at hope? Sir. Hope's twin cousin is kind of like perseverance and patience. Yeah. But hope, it carries with it this, this tension. It's the best way I can describe biblical hope is when Paul talks about hope in Romans chapter 8, he, he, he speaks, he, creation's longing. He, he uses like birth pain language. Now, Maybe you've never had a kid. I've not ever had a kid, but I've seen four born. And I understand the screaming of a mom that the hope of the pain is soon going to pass. Okay, I have had a front row seat four times. I almost passed out twice. And so when Paul talks about the Christian hope, the believer's hope, He's in complete agreement and alignment with the, the prophet, the prophets, Moses, the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the patriarchs. This idea of hope carries this, this tension, this, this pain, this expectation that something's about to change and someone is about to act. Sir. Who's experienced the tension of hope? Sir. When is it going to happen? When? Oh, I just, I need a breakthrough. I need this to change. I need this habit. I need. And so Advent is an invitation to take a hope assessment. What am I hoping for? Everybody say for. And what am I hoping in? For and in. And how many know that the two are related? What I'm hoping for is probably the thing I'm trusting and banking in. And so it's this, 
this tension, this expectation. And what's so hard for us in the 21st century when we talk about hope and tension and expectation and longing and aching and waiting, living between the advents of his first coming and his second coming, Jesus's first coming and second coming, is because we live in a culture where we can get almost anything we want or perceive to be a need immediately. So how many believe we are at a disadvantage? Trust me, I love being able to get like my, my favorite pepper plant sauce in two days when I order on Amazon. Come on, somebody say amen. I'm not harping on getting everything in two days. That's not all bad. But we, are, we have been conditioned to when we have a want, a whim, a wish, or a desire, we're one click away from that thing being here immediately. And how many believe that actually deconditions or deforms us as believers as we lean into the tension of the middle between his first coming and second coming? And I'm not used to the pain. Come on, somebody say amen. I'm not, I'm not used to the tension. I'm not used to having to live with the longing and the expectation. I'm not used to like the, the, the desire for something, but then the delay for that desire. I can get almost anything I want or need or wish for Sir. now. Sir. And I have a confession. I didn't make it through all the Black Friday emails unscathed. <laughs> can we just be honest? <laughs> Am I the only one that no one's going to raise their hand or help a brother out up here? I see that hand. And so if we're just honest, just the, the, the blanket level, the reason, okay, first of all, Romans chapter 15, can we just say why being a student of the Bible is so important? This is reason number something of hundreds. But Romans chapter 15 tells us something, and I've been reading through Jeremiah, so I'm not going to get all weepy prophet on you, because I kind of want to make everyone happy, you know. But I'm blown away as I've lived in Jeremiah a bit this week. Those who, that the story that we're grafted into is replete. It is full of decades, centuries, millennia of God's people aching, longing, and hoping for their God to act. The story that we're grafted into, it's a story one after another. I'll read it right here. Hello, Romans 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past, was written to teach us. Everyone say, teach us. Oh, these are our favorite two words. So that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, help me out, we might have, Hope, And so there's a very real sense why being a student of the Bible is so important in every generation, for the record, especially in our generation of immediacy, now, two days, if you're in a big city, same day delivery. We have to hook into the storyline where we have mothers and fathers of the faith who haven't got what they wanted right away, but they lived in hope, they kept the faith, they persevered, they were faithful to the end. Amen. We need to read and to glean from their story so that their story, by the grace of God, can be our story. Amen. How many know what it is to live 
in the, in the, in the tension of the, I would call it, the pregnant hope. That's really the language in the Bible. It's that thread, that pull, that stretch, that ink in our soul. Look at some of the, I'm just gonna read a few Psalms and then make a few comments about when Jesus showed up the first time, there were at least four main schools of thought that tied Israel's hope in what they perceived to be the way God would meet their hope and their expectation. We're gonna get there in a second, but just to anchor our ideas of hope, and then I want you to chew on these psalms this week. Psalm 25, turn in your Bible. No glitz, no glam. I just wanna read some of these, these beautiful verses about becoming a people of hope. Say amen when you've turned there or your smartphone did weird technology to get that. I don't know how it works. Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Praise God. Oh. So this is lame. so when we talk about hope, what are we not talking about? Optimism, positive outlook, good vibes, dude. Nothing wrong with having a positive outlook or good vibes or whatever people say these days. But listen, if your hope is only tied to the circumstances and the realities and the season you're currently going through and it doesn't transcend above your season, above your situation, it is not the true hope that the Bible describes as true hope. David is regularly surrounded by enemies, like betrayed by the guy he gave his life to serve, King Saul. His own son tries to like destroy his kingdom, Absalom. David had, didn't have all the cherry life situations. So for David, his hope had to transcend what he was facing so that he had an anchor to endure the storms of life. Sure. Then he goes on to say in verse four, this is a beautiful passage to memorize and to pray. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. And teach me, look, why? For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you just when I really need it. Wait, help me out there. Verse five, my hope is in you all day long. Becoming people of hope is not something we just cultivate overnight. It will be tested but it's tested and tethered to a person who walks with us. Emmanuel is not just a good idea one time a year that we celebrate. How many believe that the God who came to us as Emmanuel is the God who will never leave us or forsake us to the end of the age? All right, flip over. Just so, so all of Psalm 25 is amazing. Don't have time. Read it later today. It's gorgeous. Psalm 33, let's keep going. Let's just unpack a little bit about biblical hope. And these Psalms formed Jesus, the people, that, the Israel. These are the Psalms that would see them through that became their prayers, their promises, these passages that they would meditate upon. Let's skip to verse 13. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. 
He who forms the hearts of all and who considers everything they do. Okay, does everyone get it? This is the transcendent picture of God. The God who is over. The God who sees into the heart of every single person. He goes on to say, no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its great strength, it cannot save. Oh, someone hear this promise. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Verse 22, may your un... This is a prayer, this is a prayer right here. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So do we understand that the position, the the posture of hope, of living in the the tension of the promise, of the person, of the promise, and sometimes the the delay of receiving it or even experientially uh, living in it, hope keeps us in a place where the promises always become a potential uh, possibility and a potential to become our reality. Amen. And the great, this is the great story that I I was reading Daniel, I forgot, I don't remember what happened last week. It's all sort of like mashed potatoes and gravy. But anyway, whenever I read Daniel this week, I think, remember when when Shadrach and Abednego, just bend your knee and, and worship the king of Babylon, right? Remember, it's the story, story of the fire and the furnace. And I love this. We will, this, is their, this is their hope, their trust. This is, true, this is a unbelievable snapshot of biblical hope. We will not bow our knee to worship a false god. There's only one God, and he has the power to save us. And I love this phrase, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bend our knee. We understand that's hope. It's not God's a genie in the bottle. I'm hoping not in a random obscure verse. I'm hoping in the character, the conduct, the past faithfulness and future faithfulness of God. He has a bigger plan than what I can see. His desk in the heavens is way bigger. His thoughts are higher. And I'm going to trust that even if he doesn't deliver me in the way I think he should in this moment, I'm still not going to bow because my hope is in him. And so... It's not this, if I do this, then you do that. It's I trust in his character and his nature, and he's always working his plan, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Even when I don't understand his plan, I know that his plan transcends my life and my generation and encompasses all of creation and all of eternity. So even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still hoping and trusting in him. This is the hope that Advent invites us into. When everything around us is screaming out for our allegiance, our affection, and our attention, 
We stand in the messy middle and say, no, a horse is a vain hope. Now, what are some common horses of our generation? Your bank account, your status, your, come on, help me out, people. This is supposed to be the interactive part. <laughs> Those things we look to save us, the opinions of others, fame and fortune, good looks, youthfulness, the right guy or gal in office, all of those things from God's perspective, remember the one who reigns in the heavens and whose eyes see every human heart, he's saying all of those equal vain hope. I'm the only one who will actually deliver on his word. I'm the only one. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 81, my soul faints. Look at this language with longing for your salvation. He's this this. Uh, I don't, have, you ever, have you ever had a, a soul that fainted? It's fainting. It's so caught up in the longing for the salvation that I need. But then look what he says. But I have put my hope in your word. And we are tested, beloved, in this hour to put our hope and our trust in a million other words but this word. But every other word will be tested and held against this word at the end of the age. Every other hope, every other promise, every other idol and ideology and idea will go through the furnace, the 1 Corinthians 3, fire, and all that will remain is the unshakable kingdom of which Jesus is king and Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, it says in 1 Peter 1, 23 through 5, but my words will never pass away. One more psalm and you get the picture. There's a lot of psalms, but one, Psalm 130, this is just beautiful. This is just beautiful. Flip over to Psalm 130, please. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Can we just pause right now? Have, has anyone picked up a theme from the Psalms so far? How many are thankful? Almost every Psalm so far has painted a picture of, of war, of difficulty, despair, darkness, adversity. How many are thankful hope is not some random side issue to being a believer, but hope meets us in the most difficult, dark hours that we will ever walk through. I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed, all of them. It's crazy. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared or revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Yes. Hope. I heard a quote. I, I want to give credit to where it's due. I don't remember 
the original, original person who said it. But those who have the most hope will win the day. Amen. Those who tell the best story will win the day. And I want you to know our story, the biblical story, is a story of hope. A God who promises and then delivers. Amen. A God who responds to the cries of his people. A God who intersects and intervenes our stories with his power, with his love, with his light, and with his presence. This is the story that we pause to consider, especially at this time of year. The God who comes to us. Can we move on? There's so many more passages. We're going to skip all of that. I can just post these later or send an email. One more. And then we'll get to the, the four streams because we've got to make some quick work here. Throughout Israel's story, when, when Assyria, when, when the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled by Assyria, and then the southern kingdom of Judah was exiled by Babylon, the people who kept hope alive were the prophetic voices of, of, of their generation. And, and they, they regularly would bother their comrades, their, uh, the, their community with, with hope. They would regularly say, I know our story looks like it's, it's over, but God's going to come. God's going to intervene. And by far, this marked me as a young, young man, way back before my beard started turning gray, before four children. But there's this, this promise, and I, I think this word is probably for somebody today, in Hosea. Now, just go read Hosea. It's just a, it's a stunning book of God giving Hosea a front row invitation to what it's like to be married to a people who always go astray. It's just this unbelievable book, but there's this passage in it in Hosea chapter two that especially talks about why the good news of Jesus in Advent particularly is for our time. How many can just feel the tension rising in the hour in which we live? The darkness, the chaos, the confusion, uh, the, the, the cancel culture. I was just talking to my mother-in-law and father-in-law, just, you know, this passage is for today. The prophet Hosea talks about, in, in, in light of the rebellion of God's people, in, in chapter two, verse 14, I am going to allure her, speaking of God's covenant people, into the wilderness, I will lead her and speak tenderly to her. Now, how many of you know that the wilderness can go one of two ways? Grumpy, complaining, are we there yet? How long? Come on, somebody, say amen. You've done, you've gone that way. Or... It's an invitation to be whittled down and laid bare before the Lord so that he can have his full way in us. Amen. It's, this, it's either way. This one is always an option, but we usually resist it. Amen. But in this case, who's the one leading into the wilderness? 
that place of barrenness, that place of scarcity, that place where all the luxuries and trappings of the flesh are stripped off and you're laid bare and you are desperately reliant on another to keep you alive. Who's the one leading the covenant people into that place? Not a hard answer. Who is it? The Lord is. Amen. How many have ever had the Lord lead them into a wilderness period in your life? Just raise your hand. Every single hand should be raised. But I love the language here in verse 14. I'm going to allure her. When you think of allure, what do you think of? It's a romance. Amen. He's going to allure her into the wilderness, into the place that she would resist except for the one who's doing the alluring, who is our king, our beautiful Lord. I'm gonna speak, look what he does in that place. He could, how many know that the Lord could just take us out to lunch because of our rebellion and sin, okay? He could, I'll just speak for myself. This week I made a goal, I won't tell you what it is. I'll just tell you I didn't fulfill it. I made a goal, I made an internal goal on one of my prayer runs. I'm like, Lord, this week, I'm not even gonna tell you what it is because it's so stupid. And I, I, I'm so honest, I'm not being falsely goofy. That comes naturally, so I don't have to even try. But I did not live out of my own vow. Am I the only one that's ever done that? This week, Lord, day one of the week. And the Lord loves me, amen, he loves you. But I'm just saying how, how futile it, oh, okay, forget it. Oh, oh that, that was my point. Thank you, God, for the word. It got me back on track. In that place, he could brow, he, he does, he could, he could whoop me. Chad, you're so silly. Day one of the week, you made the vow to, I'm not even gonna tell you what it is. And already in day no, and already day one, he could like come to me with, "What are you doing, dude? Your word is so weak. Your heart is so weak. You're so selfish and grumpy." And but look what he does in the wilderness. When we deserve his judgment, what does he do in verse fourteen? He speaks tenderly to her. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. Are you kidding me? Does that melt anybody else's heart in the wilderness? I'm in this place because of my wayward heart, because of my inability to deliver on my own inner promises that I make to the Lord. And in that place of that wilderness, that withdrawal, there's one who speaks tenderly to us in our brokenness. And there, look at, look at this. Oh my goodness, it's in the wilderness he wants to give her back her vineyards. And here is the unbelievable promise. And I will make the valley of a core or, or trouble a doorway of hope. And I just believe in this season, especially wherever we're at on the pandemic spectrum and the reality of the chaos of culture and the tension in our own nation and maybe even in your own heart and family, if you'll respond to the Lord's coming, to the Lord's voice, any valley of trouble can become a doorway of hope. Any valley of trouble, if you'll listen to the one who speaks tenderly and allures you by his love, can become an opportunity 
a doorway. Look at that language of hope. How many want to put their hand on that door handle and twist this morning in the midst of trouble? So as we think about hope, and that's just a small perusal of, of some of the various passages that inform what it means to hope, to live with expectation and anticipation in the tension of the character and the promises and faithfulness of God in the past, which builds the framework that he, if he did it then, he can do it now, and he certainly will do it then. So when we come to the time of Jesus, there are really four schools of thought. There were four essential streams that all tethered their hope of the God of Israel who would come, who would rid their land of the pagans and the oppressors, who would cleanse the temple, who would restore his presence, amen. There were these, 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 these there's one commentator has nine pillars of their hope, but they all were trying to get at that hope through their own thought. Amen. How many know that even secular people in their, their hope for a utopia, a kingdom where everyone's good and happy and gets to be their own person and express, like even secular people have a built-in hope mechanism for things that are currently crummy and difficult. They need to improve and get better. Everyone say amen. God put hope in our hearts. What differentiates Christians and other religions and secular people who wouldn't claim a religion is how the means by which that hope will be realized. Amen. So in Jesus's day, there were at least four predominant thoughts that they thought the hope that anchored their hearts, that were they're filled with their scriptures. There were four ways they thought God would come and his kingdom would be established. Number one, the Pharisees. Everyone say Pharisees. The, the, the Pharisees during the time of Jesus were relatively a new phenomenon. They, they sprung up around um, the, the 150s-ish BC. The, so only 150 years or so. And as far as history tells us, they kind of died off or tapered off just around or, or shortly after the time of Jesus. But there, was the, there were these people that rose up, you know, Rome's in charge, they're in the land and there's a temple that this dude Herod built, but there's no glory of God. There's still oppression. So this can't be the fulfillment of our hopes and our promises. And so they had two primary strategies that they tethered to their hope. And if they did this, God would come and set up his kingdom. Are we tracking so far? So the Pharisees had two ideas. They wanted to change the nation. Number one, their first strategy was to completely separate Israel from the ideas and practices of the, the pagans. So it was separation. Everyone say separation. And then number one, as they separated, number two, they demanded or they taught a radical obedience to the Torah so that they would become God's faithful people. So everyone say separation and strict obedience. Amen. They thought that, it, that if, they, if they upheld those practices that would separate the Jewish people from the nations, that then God would come and their hope would be realized. How many know that even though we'd say, oh, the Pharisees and they totally get a bad rap, Jesus is always having showdowns. These were probably pretty darn good people, moral, upright, like 
They were, their hope was rooted in the right thing, but the way they, 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 they thought God would bring about his kingdom would be wildly different. Amen? So the Pharisees outward, Jesus inward. Amen. If we just perform, if we do the outward part, and Jesus is like, your zeal for obedience doesn't go deep enough. I want to overhaul the human heart. And the Pharisees, the reason they were successful and they had relative power during Jesus's time is because they gave a voice. Everyone say they gave a voice to some of the deepest desires of their people. They long for liberation. They long for a rescuer, for a deliverer. They thought they would get about that deliverance by separate, separating themselves and by perfect obedience. But we already know the failure of this option. Cue Chad Bohai and his moral promise to the Lord. And by day two, I, it wasn't even like God's ideal. It was like, so just so everyone's not tripping out. It was an internal thing I wanted to do for my family during the holidays, during this last week. But in my own weakness, I don't even live out of my own ideals, much less God's ideals without God's help. Amen. So we see there's still people who think that if they act a certain way, if they identify or don't identify with certain groups of people, then God's glorious future will arrive. How many are thankful that the good news of Jesus is better than that option? Okay, hurry up, hurry up. Number two, there were the Essenes, say Essenes. And the Essenes were, there's stuff that they did that actually is super attractive to me. It's just pretty cool to me. They chose the path of withdrawal. So, so they built this community, this Qumran community outside of Jerusalem. I've been to some of the, the, the Masada in Israel. It's amazing. Where they would intensely study the scripture. They would pray and they strictly obeyed the Torah, the law of God. And they thought if they would be faithful enough and separate enough, similar to the Pharisees, but the Pharisees would stay in town or villages. These guys made their own, they just went, they left. They left culture because it was so beyond repair. And if this little nucleus of people was godly enough and faithful enough to God's law, then God would send the Messiah. Then he would come, he would cleanse the land, bring them back to their, to, to their place of prominence. But how many know that what you'll see in each of these four options that there's things that are rooted, absolutely rooted in truth and that are good, but by themselves, they're insufficient. Amen. Because in truth, does God want us to come out and to be separate? Just read 2 Corinthians 6, 18 through 7, 1. It literally says, come out, be separate. But he wants, to, he wants us to withdraw, to be transformed. Then he wants to send us back in. Everyone say, sending us back in is the part that the Essenes option failed. It wasn't, withdrawal was not enough. How many believe that if, if the incarnation, God coming to us in his son Jesus communicates anything, it's that God's holiness is so pervasive, so glorious, that yes, it is other, it is pure, it is radiant, but it's a holiness for the messiness of humanity. Amen. He comes to us. He didn't withdraw. He enters in. And this is the shortcoming of the option of the Essenes. Number three, we're almost done. There were the Sadducees and the priesthood. 
How many have heard of the Sadducees and the priesthood? Because these folks depended upon the favor of the Romans, they weren't all that interested in changing the status quo. They, they kind of liked having the money and the positions and the titles. They weren't as revolutionary as the, 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 the Essenes or the Pharisees. And so this really represents the compromised position. And I'm not talking to anyone here who's ever compromised to keep their position or their prestige. They, 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 they were happy with the way things were because when Herod came to power and he became a puppet king for the Romans, all of these people got raised up. They got placed in positions they had no right to have because of the favor they received from the Romans. And so this really isn't an option. Compromise, status quo. Come on, someone say amen. This isn't you know, fudging the lines, kind of being blurry on, and then obviously they didn't believe in the resurrection or the miraculous or angels. And so they just had a truncated version. It's not worth it. And then lastly, the zealots, everyone say zealots. These were the fiercely loyal, uh, Torah in one hand, sword in another. I'm not talking to any zealots in this room. I know no one, but they had the idea that, that if, if, if it, Push came to shove. Uh, viva la revolution. And this was so appealing to, to so many in Jesus's day because if you've been beaten down as the Jewish people for generation after generation after generation, not to mention just before Jesus's time, there's this uprising by this guy called Judah the Hammer who, who uh, uh, drives out the Romans and there's this little moment of revival in the temple and, and it, there's all these hopes, but Judah wasn't who they hoped he would be. And the problem with the zealot option is that there's always going to be another guy with a bigger sword. Amen. There's always going to be another power. There's always going to be another person that wants the same crown, the same position that you want. And so all of these had this hope that God would come, cleanse the temple, restore his presence, bring Israel back to prominence over the nations. God would be king, reign and rule. He would cleanse them of their sin. All of them had these common hopes, but all of them thought that there was a different way to get there. Amen. And so to summarize, just so you can actually remember it, the Pharisees, they had a vision of legalism, separation, and strict obedience. As scenes, they were escapist. They had a vision of withdrawing from the messiness of the world. Zealots, they were political revolutionaries. They loved the law and they would use any means necessary to cleanse Israel of the pagans. And then you had the Sadducees and the priesthood who were so watered down and compromised that they didn't really want anything to change because they had the power and the position. And in the middle of all of this, Jesus comes. So many of us, when we read the Bible, because I, I, I was reading, a, just rereading this, I really recommend it, called Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright. He talks about the four storms that were raging around the time of Jesus. How many know Jesus did not come in a vacuum? Amen, 2,000 some years ago, he came in a culture where there was angst, much like, I mean, it's much like our culture today. The tension, the, we all want utopia and this and that, but all, every person thinks they have the answer or know the person who does. 
And just like 2,000 years ago, when Jesus comes in the midst of all of these longings and these tensions and these hopes, he offers another way. And everything that was written in the past, I already said it in Romans 15, was written to teach us so that through the endurance and encouragement, we might have hope. And so I wanna just end with this Psalm. Turn over to Psalm 146. One forty-six. And say amen, and if and when you get there. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations, praise the Lord. And when we, when we, we're, gonna, we're gonna unpack this next week is another word, another phrase, but how, how Jesus's kingdom so far meets these things we long for, but he brings them about in new and exciting ways. How many know the way of Jesus is radically different than our way? And so when Jesus comes, I wanna I want just land the plane here. When Jesus's first message that his cousin preached first about repentance and the kingdom coming, Jesus carries that message forward. What was the ministry, the message, the miracles, the parables, what was all of Jesus's life about? The kingdom of God. When Jesus used that phrase, the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's version, the kingdom of heaven, everyone in his earshot, within his voice, had an idea of what that meant. And everyone had an idea of how that would actually come to, be, to become a reality. I just mentioned the, the main four ideas of what the kingdom would look like. But what do we find in Jesus? We find a kingdom that is upside down and inside out. How many would say that his ideas are radically different than our own ideas? And part of the reason why we need Advent why we need this season of four weeks, why we need to live and to reinvestigate what our hopes are in, what we're, what we're trusting in, what we're hoping for, is to allow Jesus to come to us once again on his own terms and for him to look at all of us and ask, 
What are you hoping for and who are you hoping in? I, and Jesus would tell us today, I am the only one. Hoping in me is the only true and unshakable, firm and secure option. How many have tried trusting in other things? Remember I met with this guy, this, uh, this uh, I think he was, yeah, pretty, no, I'm pretty positive he was a self-proclaimed atheist at, at a coffee shop years ago. And, you know, this guy gave his whole life to disproving religion and he just, he was super smart. I was a bit out of my depth. Um, his whole life he'd been just, just trying to show how religion's bad for people and places and all this sort of thing. And I just started loosely quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' vision of the kingdom. Just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's breathtaking. And I'm like, dude, how would that be bad for society? He didn't, honestly, it's not like I won. Woo, I beat this really smart guy in an argument. But what I love about Christianity and, and, and life in the kingdom of God it presents the most glorious vision and version of life. It just does the most satisfying, full life. It says in Hebrews chapter six that Jesus Christ is a hope like an anchor for our soul, firm and secure that right now there is a man, Jesus Christ, who literally hoping in him and in his salvation, in his word, in his sufficiency, will serve as an anchor that will keep you through any and every single storm. And part of what our task is in this season, especially Hebrews chapter 10, is to look at each other to the left and to the right. And we look at each other and we grab each other's spiritual cheeks. Don't throw away your hope. Amen, how many have ever needed someone to grab your spiritual cheeks? That sounds weird. Anybody? They say, don't give up hope. Let, look, at, look at Hebrews 10 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, that Christ has come, that Christ has been crucified, that Christ has risen, that Christ is reigning and that Christ will come again to make all things new. And we need, we're gonna need each other in the hour in which we live. We're gonna need each other for the future that God has for his church in our time. And what I love is one of the main things we do every time we gather is not, oh, I hope they sing my favorite song or I hope Chad or whoever's teaching has a good word or I hope that they made the coffee just the right temperature. Or, I hope that my kids make it through worship so we can send them out to kids' church. We look at each other every week and we say this, we say, hold on to hope, brother. Hold on to hope, sister, because he who promised, verse 23, is faithful. 
And he goes on to say in verse 24, this was one of the most famous verses right when COVID happened. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so we look at each other every week. I hope we at least, I hope, there I did it, see? I hope we at least get to, is all of your hope in the one who alone is worthy of hope? If not, let's refocus, recalibrate, reorient. Let's gaze upon him again. We're gonna need an anchor for the storms that are and that are coming. And Jesus is the only sufficient hope. How many believe that today? Jesus alone is the hope of glory. And he wants to come and to bring hope today. I just, I, this passage, I know we just did Peter. It's not my fault that it's a perfect verse for the first week of Advent. So get over it. You probably need to hear it again. But can you just, just close your eyes and let these words wash over you as we think about hope and the tension, the longing, the ache between the first Advent and the second advent. As we live in the middle and as we're surrounded by, like Jesus, the Pharisees, Sadducees, revolutionaries, zealots of the scenes, and our, our culture, our generation. Our generation has its own version. You can kill the effects, Justin. This thing died. And so let's just receive this word. Together, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Father, I pray on this first week of Advent, this first Sunday, where we look back at your first coming, and we're gonna keep looking back, but it's also the time where we look forward to your second coming, a second Advent. Father, I pray that 1 Peter 1 would become the testimony of every person in this room, that all of us would be recipients of that new birth, 
All of us would be recipients of an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Come on, somebody say amen. That all of us could be recipients of that unshakable, pregnant hope that keeps us through the fire. That all of us would have a faith that's been refined and purified and that endures no matter the obstacle, but it endures and it's proved genuine. And then more than anything, right now, just put, stick your hands out in front of you. God, I pray that every person in this room, we read it in the psalm, especially Psalm 130, that we would receive your mercy. Can you just stick your hands out and just say, God, I need your mercy. I, and then just say, I need some mercy. I need you to give me, I need, I need to be treated like I don't deserve, and I need to receive the grace that I could never earn. And just maybe open your heart this morning and say, Jesus, I receive the gift of your life. I receive your hope this morning. And just confess, Jesus, I want to trust you. I want to turn from my sin and from myself and every other option, and I want to trust in you. Say this with me. My faith is in your faithfulness. Guys, I've been thinking about that all week. Say it again. My faith is in your faithfulness, that you were faithful so that I could be saved, that I could be healed and rescued. And so lastly, say this with me. Say, Father, I receive the gift of life through your son Jesus in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Could you stand up on your feet? I'm gonna send this out with a blessing. Amen. What was the word for this, this, this morning? Hope. How many have more hope today? Christ is our hope. Amen. He's the hope of glory. I want to send you out with the, one of the best. I mean, this deserves a whole series, but I want to send you with this passage. If you put your trust in Jesus, the Bible says if you hear his voice, you turn from sin, you respond in faith that he provoked in your heart that you are a brand new creation, amen? That literally it says in John 5, 24 and 5 that if you hear his voice, the dead become alive. And so receive this beautiful promise of hope. This is a brilliant passage on hope. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we've been made right with God. That's what that means. We have peace with God. That's next week, or peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access. Someone say access. I love that. All access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. How many are thankful that when you in Christ, you stand in the favor of God? Yes. Woo! I love that. Sorry, keep going. And we boast, someone say that with me, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, uh-oh, 
Now it gets practical and real. But we also glory in our sufferings. Ugh. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. It just does. Perseverance produces character. It just does. And character, hope. And hope, let me come on, someone say, verse five, and hope does not put us to shame or disappoint us because God's love, that's the last week of Advent, has been poured out into our heart. All the words are here in Advent, hello. Into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So right now, God, for our church family, receive this benediction. God, I pray for that hope of glory, for Christ, the hope of glory, to so reign and rule on the inside of us that his reign and rule flows through our obedience and through our partnership with him. God, I thank you that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character a hope that will never disappoint us. So Lord, I pray that living hope upon your people this week in Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you at the altar.